You're listening to the Bravehearted Voices podcast. In this podcast, we feature sermons that deeply stir us toward Jesus Christ and living fully for His glory. As you listen to this powerful collection of communicators from yesteryear, it is our desire that you be stirred to live a life fully given to Jesus Christ and discover a Christianity that actually works. And we're we'll talking about the idea of grace. So if it's called from strength to strength, that'll make sense as we go. Even a visual here will make sense actually at the very end of a message. So you can just keep that in your mind. That'll make sense. But the study and the power of grace. One of the things that's been lost in our generation is a, a biblical idea of the idea of grace. And uh, there's so much um, confusion around this term or sort of fogginess around this term. And so we're going to go to the scriptures and, and talk through the idea of what does the Bible say grace is. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about what the church today has, has done with the word grace or how it's been twisted as well to, to hopefully help to, to give us a, a grounding in the word of God on this idea of the power of grace. So the, the title comes from this, this verse in Psalm 84, and it says this, blessed, blessed means supremely happy. Uh, we use the word blessed and sort of forget what it means, but it means supremely happy is a man whose strength is in thee. In whose heart are the ways of them, who passing through the valley of Baca makes it a well. Now, we don't actually know where the valley of Baca is, and, or if it was an actual valley. Some people have some speculation about this. But Baca actually means tears uh, or weeping. So it's this idea of, of one who's, who's walking through a valley of weeping or a valley of difficulty, a valley of suffering, a valley of tears. And, and it says, what is the man who strengthens in him? What happens? Walking through a valley of suffering or of tears or of weeping, it actually turns into a well. It turns into something that gives life and, and breeds life. Even a, a, a valley circumstance brings forth life. It says the rain also fills the pools. They go from strength to strength. Every one of them in Zion appeareth before God. I, I love this idea of going from strength to strength. You know, I think for many of us, we've grown up in a culture today where it's almost expected that you're going to go from strength to weakness to strength to weakness and sort of this up and down sort of Christianity. You guys know what I'm talking about? Where, where it's, it's, hey, I'm doing really well. I've got, you know, I, I went to this summer camp and I was really inspired and I'm on this mountaintop and then, you know, boom, I was tempted and I, and I went from strength to weakness to strength to weakness. But the biblical pattern that we see is that those whom God has, has called, that they go from strength to strength, those whose strength is in him. Uh, it talks about the path of the just shining brighter and brighter until the perfect day. But it doesn't really talk about the path of the just as, well, it shines really bright and then it gets really dim, and then it shines really bright and it gets really dim. Now, now granted, our circumstances, are, it doesn't mean our circumstances are going to get better and better. All you have to do is look at the life of Paul to find out they might get worse and worse. But that doesn't mean that we can't go from strength to strength. That though Paul was, was suffering in the outward man, and though he was perishing in the outward man, and the inward man... He was thriving, and he was growing stronger, and he was actually increasing in strength and, and light of the gospel, not decreasing in it. And we see this all throughout the scriptures, this idea that God's intentions for his people is that we would grow from strength to strength to strength. And yes, we may be in chaotic circumstances. We may be in challenging circumstances. Uh, it doesn't mean that we're always going to feel like a mountaintop, right? We're, we're going to go through valley seasons and, 
and, and challenging seasons, and yet that we would be growing even in the midst of those stronger and stronger and stronger. That that is the pattern for him who, who, what, who finds his strength in God, whose strength is in him. We're going to get a little bit more into that passage as we go, but you can just sort of keep that, tuck that away in your back of your mind. So I want to ask you this question. What do we have that is different from those living in the Old Testament? What do we have that's different from those living in the Old Testament? And I want to ponder this a little bit as we begin to dive into this idea of grace to, to, to ponder this question, because I think it can expose a little bit in our thinking. So you think about those in the Old Testament. Those of the Old Testament were not saved by the law. So they were given the law as a schoolmaster to keep them until they came to Christ. They were given a law, the, the law, to expose sin, or, or to expose, as it says in Romans, the exceeding sinfulness of sin. But those in the Old Testament were never saved by the law. They, they were not justified by the law. They don't enter the kingdom of heaven because of the works of the law. It, it says that, that righteousness was imputed to Abraham by faith. And so faith is that which saved in the Old Testament, just like in the New, except that they were, you know, if you think about this as a timeline, and there's the cross, they were looking forward in faith to the Messiah to come, whereas now, if I can go over here, we're looking back. Does that make sense? Sorry, your, your timeline's like reverse when you look at me doing it. Uh, but they were looking forward in Christ, and it was faith in the coming Messiah that saved them. It was faith in the one who was coming, and that faith is that which saved them. It wasn't them doing the works of Allah. They, it, it, Peter actually talks about, you remember when James and Peter and they're at the Council of Jerusalem, and they're talking about the situation that's going on where, where they're saying, should we be imposing the law upon the Gentiles? And he says, why should we impose a law that neither we nor our forefathers were able to keep. They weren't saved by the law. They were saved by looking forward to the Messiah that was to come. And so they had this faith in the Messiah that was to come, and righteousness was imputed to them, or was imparted to them. They had this, this righteousness given to them as a result of their faith, and they were saved. And so you go, okay, well, their, their faith was in the same Messiah, uh, only they were looking forward and we're looking back. So what do we have differently? And, you know, I think that the way in which the gospel is preached in, in many ways in our culture, let me, let me try and explain it to you like this. They would say, well, we're, they, they have faith in the coming Messiah. They were saved by that faith, and therefore they had this, this eternal hope, this eternal salvation looking forward to that. Now, we, and, and by the way, they, their behavior was based around trying to imitate the law, right, which created this sort of up and down life because you can't do it. Right? They weren't able to keep the law. Now we, looking back at the cross, have an eternal hope, we're saved, and now we look, instead of a law, at the life of Jesus, and we try and imitate the life of Jesus, and, and as we look at him, we just sort of do our best to be like him. And that's the message that's preached oftentimes today, is that just like they looked at the law, they had this eternal salvation and this hope to be saved, but now we look at Christ, and this, we have this eternal salvation, hope to be saved, but nothing that really changes us here. By the way, that's not true. And I'm going to get into that this morning. But that's oftentimes the gospel message that is preached today. It's almost as though there's nothing really different between the Old Testament and the New Testament, except that they, having eternal salvation, were trying to imitate the law, and now we, having eternal salvation, are trying to imitate Christ. But that's actually not the gospel. It's partially true. There's a part truth there, but it's not the gospel. And I want to look into that this morning. So in 1 Peter 1, Peter's talking about the, the, the great gift that has been given to them now living in the realities of what Christ has purchased. He says that this salvation of prophets have inquired and searched carefully who prophesied of the grace that would come to you. 
Searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. To them it was revealed that not to themselves, but to us they were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things which the angels desire to look into. Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you of a revelation of Jesus Christ as obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts as in your ignorance, but as he who has called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on a father who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear, knowing that you are not redeemed of corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. And so in John 117, it says this, For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. You have this contrast. Moses brought the law. And what was the law? The law was a schoolmaster. The law could show them the perfect standard of righteousness. It was good, right? It exposed the exceeding sinfulness of their sin, but it couldn't save them. It couldn't save them. But grace and truth came for Jesus Christ. And grace is so much more than me just looking at the hope that I have in Christ and doing my best in my own strength to imitate him. But grace is actually the empowerment that we have in the New Testament to now actually walk as he walked and to now actually showcase the glory of God. What is the hope of glory? It's Christ in us. And so we have this, this gift of grace and truth that comes through Jesus Christ, which is in total contrast to the law which came from Moses, which was good, but was not able to save. Romans 5 says this, Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. And, and this is this whole discussion that, that Paul has in Romans, where he says the law entered that the offense might abound. And you go, wait, wait, the law makes the offense that makes sin abound? Well, in the sense that it shows the offense, and it shows that they had no power against sin. And so they try not to sin, and, and, and it exposes if they don't sin, and, and it shows the exceeding sinfulness of sin, and they continue in sin, and it abounds. So law enters that the offense might abound, that it would show the offense. But wherein sin abounded, grace abounded much more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And so you have the, the men and women underneath the Old Testament, the believers in the Old Covenant, would look forward to the Messiah coming. It was their faith in the coming Messiah that saved them. They had this eternal hope, but their life there didn't have the grace to actually live out the life that they were called to. They, they, they just had the, the law to show them and to, to condemn sin of the flesh, but to not actually enable them. But we actually now living in these promises that were given to us that they first spoke of and they looked into, even the angels desire to look into which is a funny side comment from Peter. Even the angels desire to look into this. We now, having, having received the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, he died not only to give us an eternal salvation, but to bring grace that we might live acceptably now and here in these bodies. Oops. So what do we have that is different from those living in the Old Testament? Simply put, it's grace. And, and now some of you might go, well, I'm still confused about this idea of grace. Don't worry. We'll get into that. Okay, we're going to talk more about what grace is in the New Testament. Uh, but we have grace. 
and, and grace is that which is different. They didn't have the grace that we have today. That the grace of God has been made available to us through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that grace is that which now empowers us to live. They had the law which showed them how they ought to live, but only condemned sin because they couldn't do it. But we now have grace which enables us to live the way that he has intended us to. So my car ride with a redeemed gangster from New Jersey. Uh, so I was in uh, Allentown, Pennsylvania, and I was flying back to Colorado. And I, uh, you guys ever been on an airplane where, where, where I guess I was sitting there getting ready to, to load, and I'm there in line or whatever, and they say, hey, we're so sorry, we overbooked a flight. Would somebody please volunteer to, to not fly? And then they sort of like negotiate with you to, to pay you some amount or give you some sort of credits. And so I was, I was single, and, and, uh, which means I didn't really have anywhere to go. And uh, so I thought, sure, why not? I'll take the flight. And I was, I was broke, too, I think. So uh, that sounded really nice. And so I was like, sure, I'll do this. So, so they're talking to me. They're like, what we're going to do is we're going to actually take you, and we're going to bring you over to Newark Airport, which is maybe like an hour away. And you're going to fly out of there, and we'll actually get you home at a pretty similar time, except they didn't tell me there was a storm and the flight was canceled in Newark. But uh, they probably didn't know. We'll give them the benefit of a doubt. So, so I, they take me over, and, well, I don't really know it, but I, I go over to the entrance of the airport, and they're going to pick me up, and they hired, like, a limousine service. I wasn't first class. I was just the low level. But, but they hired a limousine service. Uh, it wasn't, like, an actual limousine, but they, like, drive in this big, super fancy black SUV, and I'm like, wow, I got a good deal. This is cool. So I, I jump into this SUV, and the guy's like, hey, you want some water? And, and so I'm listening to his music, and he's got this Christian music playing. So he starts driving. I said, hey, what, I, I heard your music there. Are you a believer? And uh, so, so this man starts telling me his story. He's a believer. He's a pastor in a church there. And he, 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 had had this, he was a gangster in Newark, New Jersey. And he started telling me, I mean, he was like, I, I had murdered people when he was 11 years old. I uh, was on drugs. And I mean, just an awful life stuck in the gangs of Newark, New Jersey there. And the Lord saved him. And he started a church. And he's a pastor. And he said, so yeah, I, I'm a pastor. But I really wanted to have more opportunities just to preach the gospel to people, so I started driving uh, so that I could talk to people. And so that's what he was doing. So we had this, this drive, and we're driving along, and, and I said, well, tell me about you know, your, your uh, walk with the Lord. And he says, well, you know, I'm a believer, but I'm not just like one of those, um, how did he say it? He said, I'm not, I'm not just like one of those, uh, you know, grace um, makes us, you can do whatever you want to sort of guys. But I believe we actually need to follow Jesus. We actually need to live for Jesus. And, and, uh, and, and it was interesting, as we started talking about this, he starts talking about grace, and he says, I'm not just like a grace believer. And I said, can I, can I walk you through what the New Testament says about grace? And he says, sure. And so I started walking through some of what we're going to walk through today. And at the end of his car ride, he, he was crying, and he goes, I never knew what grace was. I never realized it. I, God put you here in my car today. I, I, I needed to know this. Because he was struggling with seeing what's going on with sort of this, if I can call it sloppy grace, uh, or I'm going to call it twisting of grace in our culture day where, where people are saying, oh yeah, grace of God just simply means that, that you pray this prayer, you, you, you say these certain words, and it doesn't matter what you do for the rest of your life, you're in. And he was struggling with that, right? He was seeing that being preached in our culture, and he was going, well, I don't believe in that. So yeah, I believe in grace, but I don't believe in that sort of grace. And, and he didn't really know how to work through this. And it was really cool to, to be able to walk through it with him. I've never talked to him since. I don't think we even exchanged numbers, so I have no idea where he is today. But this idea of grace has been lost in our culture because many people, 
in, in the church don't know what grace means. And so I'm going to walk you through a little bit of what I walked him through uh, that day in my car ride. So the twisting of words. One of the things that the enemy does is he likes to twist words. Because if he can redefine these key words that are part of our faith, then when you read a Bible, you read it, but you don't actually understand it. As an example, uh, he's gone after the word love in our culture. And, and if I were to ask 20 different people, what does love mean? They're all going to probably tell me different variations. Oh, it just means tolerance. Uh, or it means this or that or whatever it is. And so it's, it's a twisted thing. And so then people read the Bible and they don't actually understand what it's saying because they have some alternative definition for the word love. And, and I forget who said it, but somebody once said that when words lose their meanings, people lose their lives. And, and that is so true in terms of the, the church. If we don't know what these, these words mean, faith is another example. Well, if I think that faith is just sort of wishful thinking or, or just trying to convince myself that if I convince myself hard enough that this is true, if that's my, what I'm thinking faith is, well, then I'm going to misunderstand a whole bunch of the New Testament talking about faith or, or believing. Uh, that, that believing is one of the key elements of our faith. If we don't know what it means, we're in trouble. Repentance is another one. Grace is probably one of the number one words that's under attack in our generation because if the enemy can twist grace and, and what it means, all of a sudden I'm reading the Bible, but I'm missing the point because I don't know what it means. So what is grace? So I'm going to give you a really simple definition, I and mean, I'm then I'm going to walk through the Strong's definition with you. But, but a really simple definition is, is God's work on man's behalf. So it's God laboring on man's behalf. And so if you look at the Strong's definition, the word is charis in, in the Greek. It means goodwill, loving kindness, or favor. Um, some people would say unmerited favor, uh, which primarily comes from the Old Testament uh, definition. But it's this idea of goodwill, loving kindness, favor. It's of a merciful kindness by which God, exerting his holy influence upon souls, turns them to Christ, keeps, strengthens, and increases them in Christian faith, knowledge, affection, and kindles them to the exercise of Christian virtues. It's God working on man's behalf. That's grace. So you think about the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ? That's grace. That, that there was no intercessor, and he looked and there was no intercessor. So his own right hand goes forth, and, and in the Lord Jesus Christ... He does the work which we couldn't do. He labors on our behalf, and Jesus Christ brings grace. You see, the law is, is God's demands of righteousness, or God's standard of righteousness revealed. It, it, it reveals the character of the nature of God, and it's holy, it's good. But the law demands your work on your behalf. And when you begin to work on your behalf, you find out you're really bad at it. And it doesn't work. <laughs> it's called self-effort works. And you know what it produces? It, it produces Ishmael. You guys remember Abraham? And God has a promised son. And Abraham thinks he can do it on his own. And so Sarah says, hey, why don't you just sort of hook up with Hagar and we'll make this thing happen. And what comes out of that is, is a son of a wild donkey, Ishmael. God's promise comes through God's work, which would be Isaac. And it was impossible. There was no other way for it to be done. God does it, and God then fulfills his promise through that. And so there's two options. And I think a lot of us have this idea that there's like a, a bunch of different ways to go about this life. There's really just two ways you can go about this life. You can go about it in self-work, self-effort, what man can do, or you can go about it through grace, which is God laboring 
on man's behalf. It's God's work on man's behalf. And so you have law, which again is, is I'm looking at God's demands, and I'm going to try and produce this myself, versus grace, which is God doing it for me, and him actually working or laboring on my behalf. And so that's the idea of grace in the New Testament. So we're twisting the gospel of grace. Now in our generation, for the, the, the idea of grace is primarily that of compassion or of unmerited favor. That's primarily what is taught upon. Well, that's true, that, that God working on our behalf is favor that we didn't merit. It's, it's, it's his compassion. We don't deserve it. And that's a part of grace, but it's not the full package. It, it's just one piece of it. And so what's happened is grace has actually been twisted in our generation because we've actually only taken a piece of it as opposed to the whole thing. And when you take just one part, it ends up messed up. Uh, so here's a quote. I'm not recommending this book, okay? So this is from a book called Ragamuffin Gospel by Brennan Manning. And he's quoting a guy, probably some of you out there could pronounce this name. Uh, because you guys know how to pronounce these sort of names. I don't. So I'm going to probably uh, butcher, but we'll just say Fyodor. Fyodor? Fyodor? No. I'm not sure if that's how to say it either. Uh, but uh, here's what he says. He says, Fyodor, oh, I got to say it now. Doskiveski caught the shock and scandal of the gospel of grace when he wrote, at the last judgment, the Christ will say to us, Come, you also. Come, drunkards. Come, weaklings. Come, children of shame. And he will say to us, Vile beings, you who are in the image of a beast and bear his mark, but come all the same, you as well. And the wise and prudent will say, Lord, why do you welcome them? And he will say, If I welcome them, you wise men, if I welcome them, you prudent men, it is because not one of them has ever been judge worthy. And he will stretch out his arms, and he will fall at his feet, and we will cry out sobbing. And then we will understand all. We will understand the gospel of grace. Lord, your kingdom come. Now, this is an extremely popular author who has been one of the leaders in the postmodern church today who's writing about a different gospel of grace. By the way, this isn't the gospel of grace that the Word of God teaches. This is a different gospel that says God is just compassion, God is just mercy, he is just unmerited favor, but it ignores and cuts out a whole bunch of the Word of God. And it, it just focuses on this one element and it's twisted. And, and this is a version that, that maybe not to that degree, hopefully not to that degree, many of us have inherited in this generation is this sort of version of grace, which is a version that is part true, but, but not fully true. And as a result, basically it results in universalism when you take it to its furthest degree. Powerless grace, the poisonous recipe for spiritual mediocrity that has created the modern grace. Sorry, the modern church. So powerless grace is this idea of grace stripped of the power of God. It's God's compassion, it's his mercy, but it's without his strength, without his power, without the supply of that which is necessary to actually live out this life. Jude actually warns about this. In Jude 1 verse 4, he says, For there are certain men crept in unawares, who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men turning the grace of God into lasciviousness and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. So even there in the early church, you had these men who had crept in unawares, these men who were not good guys. <laughs> uh, and what did they do? They were turning the grace of God into lasciviousness. Now, lasciviousness is this idea, uh, it's like the word licen licentiousness. And in fact, I think it's translated that way sometimes. But it's this idea of a license to sin. So turning the grace of God, saying, hey, it's okay, you can live however you want to, God's grace is, is, is going to cover that up. So, so it's turning the grace of God and it's saying, well, where sin abounded, the grace of God abounded much more. Therefore, 
Live however you want to, and the grace of God, the compassion, the unmerited favor of God will just sort of pat you on the back and say you're good to go. That's the idea of, of them turning the grace of God or twisting the grace of God into lasciviousness. And this is exactly what's happened in the church in our generation. 2 Timothy 3 says, This know also that in the last days perilous times will come. For men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God, having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof. From such, turn away. I want to just look at that last line. Having a form of godliness. That it, it looks godliness, or it's a certain form of godliness, but they've denied the power of God that's actually in it. That, that there's a form of doing it, but it's self-effort. It's not God-power-effort-fueled Christianity. It's self-effort-fueled Christianity. So I want to just look at just an example of this and sort of how this works and how this changes the interpretation of Scripture. So the call to depart from iniquity, this is from Matthew 7. Jesus says this. This is from the Sermon on the Mount. Not everyone that says unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father, which is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name, and in thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works? And then I will profess to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. You know, I, I think for all of us, there's a holy trembling with that verse. And you know, one of the things I think about sometimes when I read that verse is, is who told those people that he would know them? That's a fearful thing, isn't it? That, that who told them, hey, you're good to go, brother. You, 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 you've done this thing or you've done that thing. Or uh, uh, A lot of the old preachers would call it easy believism. Uh, easy believism means, means, hey, if you just say the right words or sort of pray the right prayer, you're in. It doesn't matter what else happened. You're, you're in. And, and this sort of just... Um, lip service that somebody said, hey, they're gonna, they're gonna, he's going to know you. And yet he, he says, depart from me. I never know you, you workers of iniquity. Essentially in 2 Timothy, Paul has this passage. It seems like Paul actually maybe be referring back to the Sermon on the Mount. Of course, we don't know that for sure, but it's a, it's a parallel passage. He says, nevertheless, the foundation of God stands sure, having this seal, the Lord knows them that are his, and let everyone that names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. He says, if you name the name of Christ, depart from iniquity. And yet here are those who are workers of iniquity, who didn't depart from iniquity, who say, Lord, Lord. Uh, by the way, every time it says Lord, Lord in the scriptures, uh, it's interesting. Every time it's both, it, it's people who are calling him Lord who have not submitted to him as Lord. It's like they're trying to make up in noise what they lack in, in reality, uh, which is sort of interesting. But they're saying, Lord, Lord. And he says, I, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. So the modern gospel of grace. So I, we're just going to examine how the modern gospel of grace would respond to the call to depart from iniquity. Truth number one, God is righteous. Okay, we agree on that. That's uh, true. Truth number two, you are not righteous. We are all a human mess. Okay, uh, that's true. We are not righteous. You know, human in the 1828 Webster's Dictionary means profane. Uh, and that's true. Uh, humanity on its own is profane. Uh, truth number three, as a human, you can't depart from iniquity. Well, okay. Yes, as a human in human strength. Uh, truth number four, therefore Jesus came to clothe you in his spotless robe and to make you holy. Yeah, we agree on that. Truth number five, now that you are saved, you should, just, you should esteem the life of Jesus and try to imitate him. Well, it's a part truth, but imitation doesn't work. Any more than looking at the law, 
and saying, I'm going to look at the law and I'm going to try and produce the, the standard of righteousness in my own strength, looking at the life of Jesus and saying, I'm going to imitate the life of Jesus in my own strength, doesn't work. In my own strength, I can't do that. Truth number six, anyone who actually pursues holiness is a self-effort legalist. That would be so proud and arrogant to actually think you could practice righteousness. Truth number seven, there is no need to depart from iniquity. We can't actually do that as mere humans. Jesus loves you just the way you are and doesn't expect you to actually live any differently than your old life. Do you see how it's been twisted? And this is actually being propagated as grace, and it's part true. There's been an entirely new dictionary that has been created for the gospel. So this is the new dictionary. Holiness, the unhealthy preoccupation with good works in an attempt to appease God. Legalism, the pursuit of holiness, the attempt to better the human life and make it more godlike. Compassion, God's unmerited embrace of sin. Love, unlimited tolerance and acceptance of everything and everyone. Grace, God's unconditional acceptance of sinners. Abba Father, God infinitely accepting, always embracing, never disciplining, never hard, always soft and sweet. So welcome to our modern gospel. And it's part true. There's part truths in each of those things, but when you take just a part truth, you actually end up way off course. So Nike knockoffs. This comes from, uh, uh, we had a missionary here, oh, this was quite a while ago. And they were missionaries from Thailand. And he came in, and I just thought this was a great illustration. He held up two Nike shirts. And he said, can any of you guys tell? He said, one of these is a real genuine Nike shirt. The other one comes from Thailand where we have tons of great knockoffs. And, and he said, can anybody figure out which one's real? We couldn't tell. And then, he, and then he said this line, the power of deception is how close something can get to the truth without being the truth. I think a lot of us think about deception as being like, well, yeah, it's black and white. We've got the lie over here and the truth over here. But actually, it's how close can it be where it's almost true and yet it's terribly not true. And that's what's gone on in our generation, where it's almost true. And as a result, you know, you go, well, I don't want to be a legalist. I don't want to be somebody who's just trying to be like God in my own strength. And, and so as a result, people shy away from these things as opposed to saying, we're going to go to the word of God and say, if this is what the word of God teaches, we're going to believe it. And, and people can call us names and, and people can say whatever they want to. And, and it's not that we just throw out all the things that are true that they're saying, but we've got to line up with the word of God. It's not just that it's partially true that matters, but that it's all in alignment with the word of God. So what is grace in the New Testament? Okay, so that's the twisting of grace. Now let's get into the good stuff. What is grace in the New Testament? Grace is much more than the compassion or favor of God. It's partly the compassion or favor of God. It is the enabling power of God. So grace, charis, appears 126 times in the New Testament. 99 times it is used in such a way that shows both the compassion as well as the enabling power of God. 25 times it is used in such a way where the enabling power dimension is brought to the forefront and is unmistakable. One time it is used with more emphasis towards the compassion dimension, but even in that verse one could argue the nuance of the enabling power. And one other time grace is used in the New Testament to show something other than compassion or enabling power. It's a completely different Greek word, uh, euprepia. I'm probably saying that wrong, sorry. Uh, beauty or shapeliness. So it's a different word. So that's just an overview of, of this idea of grace in the New Testament. It's this idea of the power of God as well as the, the compassion or the mercy of God, the coupling of those things. We are undeserving of it. We are. It is his mercy that brings it to us. But he doesn't just bring us a covering for sin. He rescues us from our sin through his power, which is totally different. But he's not just there to, to cloak our sin, but to actually rescue us from it. Right? Remember what the, the angel said to Joseph? That, that you shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sin. 
So where do we get our righteousness? It's grace. It's God's work on our behalf. Self-produced righteousness, or a righteousness, like Paul says, that comes from the law, is as filthy rags in God's sight. We can never produce our righteousness. So where does our righteousness come from? It comes by grace. It was God's work that there upon the cross that the Lord Jesus Christ was taking our sin upon him, he who knew no sin became sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. It's the work of God on our behalf that makes us righteous, that, that cleanses us, removes our sin as far as the east is from the west, and, and makes us righteous. In Galatians 2.20, he says, I have been crucified of Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God. For if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. So if, if righteousness could come from me looking at the list and saying, I'm going to do this stuff in my own effort, then Christ died in vain. But righteousness doesn't come that way. If I could, if I could be righteous that way, then there would be no need for the cross. But I can't be righteous that way. So righteousness comes from the work of God on man's behalf at the cross where he died in order to clothe us in that clothing of righteousness. Like a bride adorned for her groom, we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And Jeremiah talks about his name being Jehovah Siknu, which means the Lord, our righteousness. That his work, he himself, his righteousness is applied to us as our righteousness. So then I have a question. Is it that that righteousness, or is Christ's righteousness to be legal or clothing only, or is it to be in practice bearing the fruit of righteousness? Do you understand the question? So I'm clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Just like if you could say they were saved for the righteousness of Christ looking forward to his righteousness. Now, looking back on the cross, I have faith in him. And when I believe in him, I am in him. How do I enter in him? By faith. When I believe in his work, I'm clothed in his righteousness. So now the question is, is well, am I only clothed in his righteousness? Or does his righteousness actually begin to produce righteousness in my life? By the way, it's the second. That he actually begins to now produce this righteousness. is no more my righteousness than the clothing of righteousness. That the righteousness that I produce in my life is not because of me. is not because of my work or my self-effort fuel. Again, that would be just like in the Old Testament. But we have something in total different than the Old Testament. We don't just look at the law and say, okay, now I'm going to imitate it. Or we don't just look at the life of Christ and say, now I'm going to imitate it. But we're clothed in him so that he can now enter into us so that in and through us, he can begin to produce righteousness. It's two different kinds of righteousness. The righteousness that I'm clothed in and the righteousness that I begin to practice, but it's both his work on my behalf. He clothes me in, the, in his righteousness, his work on my behalf, and then he produces his righteousness his work on my behalf. It's all grace. It is all grace that is doing that. It's his labor, his power that is now producing what I otherwise could not produce in my life. This is what grace means. First John 3 says, little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. In this, the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. You see, there would be many today who would make us to think that I'm going to be clothed in his righteousness, and then underneath that clothing of righteousness, I'm just going to do whatever I want. And, and, and he says, don't let anybody deceive you, which, by the way, means we are deceivable, <laughs> right? We, we, we could be confused about this thing. We could get lost on this thing. So we've got to pay attention. And, and he says, it's he who practices righteousness. 
Now, is that man's self-effort righteousness? No, because that's like filthy rags. That's not righteous. But it's he who, being clothed in righteousness, now begins to practice the righteousness that comes from the faith in the Son of God. It's that righteousness that is made by grace. It's God's labor in and through me to produce that. That is righteousness. So this was a conversation I was having with somebody a little while back, and we were talking about victory over sin. And this man was, was, didn't really believe that you could have victory over sin. And so we were in this discussion, and, and he looked at me, and here's what he said. He said, so Philip, if we could have victory over sin, wouldn't there be no more need for grace? Uh, now, I just want you to ponder this question, because I think this really sort of drills down to the, the, the modern church view on grace. Which is, again, grace is there so that when I'm sinning, it covers me. That's sort of a modern view. So his thought was, well, if you could have victory over sin, you wouldn't need grace anymore. Which, if you think grace is just a cover for sin, that makes logical sense. However, if you recognize that, no, the victory of, over sin is not because I'm trying to, to, to do my own uh, self-effort-fueled works to produce righteousness... The only way I can have victory over sin is through grace. That's how I have it. It's not me working on myself. It's God's labor on my behalf that gives me victory over sin. And so if I have victory over sin in my life, it's not that I don't need grace anymore. How much more do I need grace? Because grace is there to actually give me that victory. That is grace. Do you see the difference? So I think this sort of helps us to, to see the difference. That it's not just a cloak where if I, didn't need, if I wasn't sinning anymore, I wouldn't need this cloak anymore. Yes, it's a covering of righteousness. But then it's actually the grace, the power of God, the enabling work of God that is actually giving me victory and triumph and strength in our everyday life. So Romans chapter 6. Uh, if you have your Bibles, you're welcome to, to, to look at this as well. Uh, this is like um, preaching one-on-one, never do this, but I break all the rules of preaching one-on-one, which is we're going to read from the entire chapter of Romans chapter 6 because he actually is addressing this exact issue. Of, of basically people saying, oh, we have grace, therefore we can go on sinning because we've got this covering of grace. And, and he actually talks about what grace really is, which is that it's giving them victory and triumph and setting them free. God's work on their behalf was setting them free from sin. So I want to look at this in Romans chapter 6. He basically cycles through this question three times during this chapter. So you'll notice him sort of, he'll, he'll cover the question and then he'll like, bring it back again and, and answer it again and then bring it back in and answer it again. You'll sort of see these three different cycles as we read through this chapter. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore we being buried with him through baptism into death that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should walk and newness of life. We're going to talk about this more this, this week, but this is the idea of, of identification of Christ. That when he went to the cross, we died to sin when we were there on the cross. If we're in him, we went to the cross also. When he was buried, our old man was buried. We rose again so that we would walk not according to the old man or the flesh, but according to the newness of life that's provided in Christ. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also should be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. For he who has died has been freed from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. 
For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. That the life that he lives, he lives to God. Likewise you, likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey in its lusts. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For, for sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. You see how that works? Sin has dominion over if you're just trying to imitate the law. But under grace, you've been set free. He says, what then? Shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? Certainly not. Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are about one slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness? But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. And having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness." I speak in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as the slaves of uncleanness and the lawlessness leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. What fruit did you have been in those things which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now, having been set free from sin and having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness and the end everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Oswald Chambers says this, We are far removed from Jesus Christ's point of view today. We take the natural rationalistic line, and his teaching is no good whatever unless we believe the main gist of his gospel, viz. that we have to have something planted into us by supernatural grace. Grace to serve God acceptably. This is from Hebrews chapter 12. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken... Let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. We have grace to serve God acceptably. Wow, that's totally different than the sort of modern idea of just unmerited favor. Actually, it doesn't even make sense in that context. But he has given us grace that we might serve him in such a way that, that, that is actually pleasing to him. Again, not because of our man-produced work, but because of God laboring on our behalf. That God is laboring in order to sanctify us, to, to remove that which is not like him, to set us apart so that we may serve him acceptably. Self-effort works versus grace-empowered works. In Romans 11, you have this contrast of, of self-effort work versus grace. And if by grace, then it is no longer of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. But if it is of works, it is no longer grace. Otherwise, work is no longer work. Now, this is, is actually slightly confusing. If you stick this up against the book of James, and then James says, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show you my faith by my works, and you go, wait a second, well, works, it's no longer grace. How does this work? Uh, no pun intended. Uh, okay, so, so Paul is talking about works of the law, where, again, the works of the law means I'm looking at this list, or I'm looking at God's demands for righteousness, and I'm producing those in self-effort works. And he says, if it's self-effort works, it's not God's labor on man's behalf, it's not grace, that's works. James, then, is talking about a, a grace-fueled work that comes through faith. So in the book of James, when speaking of works done through faith, James is speaking of grace-empowered works, not self-empowered work. Because faith gives us access to the grace of God, which is the only means by which we can truly produce works of righteousness. Does that make sense? 
So Paul's talking about a work of, of human flesh or of, of man's making, and that will never produce righteousness. James is talking about a works which is a totally different type of works, which is a works that's not fueled by man's righteousness, but, but comes by faith, which we receive grace to then produce righteousness. Is it our righteousness? No. It's the righteousness of Christ being produced in and through the believer's life. So the great irony, those preaching a powerless grace are teaching that God does not provide a sufficient power to give the Christian victory. As a result, those of such beliefs are stuck with nothing more than self-effort to continue trying to fight sin. Does that make sense? In other words, if God can't actually help me to overcome sin, all I have is self-effort to try and overcome sin. I, I have one of the two. I'm either going to produce it on my own through self-effort works, or it's going to be God uh, effort works, if I can say it that way, or God or, or grace, God laboring on my behalf. And so those who do not believe in this, they're stuck with nothing more than self-effort to continue trying to fight sin. In rejecting grace-fueled victory with a cry of legalism, they actually become self-effort-fueled legalists or self-effort-failed workers of iniquity. You sort of have one, two choices uh, on that. If we reject the power of grace of God, all that remains is self-effort to sustain Christianity. In other words, if grace actually can't fuel a life of obedience to Christ, then all I have is whatever I can fuel. And so I'm actually stuck with, if all I think is that I'm clothed in the work of Christ, but now I've got to just somehow produce righteousness, I actually will become a legalist. Does that make sense? Because I'm clothed in his righteousness, and now I'm going to just try and produce this righteousness in my own strength. But that's not the gospel. The gospel is that I'm clothed in his righteousness so that he can enter into me, so that he can actually give me all that I need for life and godliness through his divine power that is given to us. And, and now, because of his divine power, his divine working, his laboring on my behalf, I can produce something that I could never produce on my own. And that's the gospel. So are we teaching Christian perfectionism? Now, I like to just bring this up because people like to sort of throw these words around and maybe not even know what they mean, but just like, oh, well, you say we have victory over sin. Are you a Christian perfectionist? No, we're not. Okay, so a Christian perfectionism says when you enter into Christ that you are immediately behaviorally perfect. Okay? Now, again, it's a part truth. When we enter into Christ, we are sanctified, we are being sanctified, and we will be sanctified. The, the, the term sanctification is used in the past, the present, and the future. Okay, in, in the scriptures. Sanctification is this idea of being made holy or being made more like Christ. So when we enter into Christ, those who would teach Christian perfectionism would say, you are, you, you're just, you're, your sanctification is done. Uh, it's not that you're sanctified, being sanctified, and will be sanctified. You're just sort of done. You're perfect right there. And then what they have to say is then, from then on, anything you do is perfect. So, you know, I come up and punch you in the face, and I just, well, that was perfect. Uh, I don't know how that works. You've got to justify everything you do because I'm perfect. That's not what we're teaching. What we're saying is, as you enter into Christ, you're clothed in his perfection. You've been sanctified. Does that make sense? You've been clothed in his perfection. Then his perfect life enters into you, and he begins to perfect you. But that's a process called sanctification that you're going to grow in grace. You're going to grow in learning how to walk in the grace of God, and, and, and we will continue to be sanctified. Uh, now, you could ask the question, am I going to be perfect this side of heaven? And I actually don't find that question very helpful because what I would say is, is he's given you everything you need for life and godliness. Go after him. Go after him. And, 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 and where you have been imperfect, you can perfectly respond to your imperfection. 
and by, by repenting and saying, God, I'm going after you. I'm believing in your labor on my behalf, and I'm going to, I'm going to seek to live in the grace of God and, and to actually walk in the grace of God. So what do we do if we sin? We, we come to him, right? We come to Christ and confess our sin and rejoice in his work on our behalf. That's grace, right? We rejoice in the fact that he is working on our behalf. We bring it to him. It says in, in 1 John 2, he says, My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. He's writing so that we would have victory over sin, so that we would have triumph over sin. He says that if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And so you have this tension where you don't want to set up the expectation that, yeah, you're just going to continue walking in sin. No, we aren't to continue walking in iniquity. He's written these things that we would have victory because he saved us from our sin. And the grace of God is powerful enough. It's given you everything that you need for life and godliness. But if you find yourself having sinned, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, for righteous. And we come to him, we repent, and, and we trust that he's able to give us all that we need for life and godliness. So how do we exercise this grace? Is it us or is it him? You know, Paul talks about, I labored more abundantly than they all, but not I, but the grace of God which was in me was, was laboring. And, and he talks about this, you know, I, I live, but not I, but Christ in me, this sort of language. And, and so people have this question, well, how does this grace work? Like, it's God's labor on my behalf, so do I just sort of sit back in my, in my you know, couch and it's like, okay, God, if you want to produce righteousness, it's your work. Do it. Uh, well, that's not exactly how it works. Okay, so here's... here's this is a hard thing to explain, and I'm going to give you my best illustration, uh, but if you're like, that doesn't work for me, I don't understand it, that's okay. Uh, this is just my illustration, but I think it can help maybe in explaining this idea of how does God's grace couple with our involvement in that grace. You guys know what overexertion is? So overexertion is when you try and exert, like say in a physical sense, when you're trying to exert strength or muscle that you don't have. Okay, so let's say that I try and bench press 500 pounds, which I can't do, and, and I try and bench press 500 pounds, and, and it's like, I would overexert. And what happens when you overexert is you actually damage the muscle that you do have. Uh, that you're, the, the, the muscle that I do have or the strength that you do have becomes damaged. That's sort of what it's like trying to walk under the law. You're like, okay, God, you said to do this, and, and it shows you the exceeding sinfulness of your sin. In fact, the law enters that sin might abound, and you're going, this doesn't work, I can't. Because before that, you were like, oh, I'm really strong, until he put the weights on it. You just had like a bar. Uh, and then the law enters and says, yeah, this is righteousness. And you're like, I can't do it. That's, that's the first step towards salvation. I can't do it. I can't, right? The law is given to expose sin, to show the exceeding sinfulness of sin, to convince us of our sin. This is even actually what the Holy Spirit does as well, is to convince us of sin, righteousness, and judgment to come, to bring us to Christ. And so then I come to Christ, and, and he clothes me in his righteousness, and he says, would you give up your life? and receive mine. It's called the exchange life. And, and, and he said, would you give up your own strength, and would you allow me to give you mine? And, and so I receive him, and, and all of a sudden, you know, my, my sort of wimpy little muscles are all of a sudden like, Pff! and I've got muscle. And I go now to, to lift the 500 pounds, to bench press this impossible life that I otherwise couldn't bench press, and I'm just, I can like pump it out. Now, if you were to ask me the question, or let me ask you the question, what what is it that's lifting the weight when I'm bench pressing? Is it me or is it my muscle? Some of you guys are like, I hate these sort of questions. Uh, <laughs> well, you could say it is entirely my muscle. If it wasn't there, 
I could choose and I could willpower all day, you know, but I can't will that 500 pounds up. That's true. But I'm still actively engaged in doing it. So he says, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body. Now you can try that all day long in your own strength. It won't work. You, you will overexert your wimpy little muscles and, and find out you can't do it. And then all of a sudden you have his muscle. It's the grace of God. It's God working on man's behalf. And he says, try again. Let not sin reign therefore in your moral body. And all of a sudden, you can do that which you otherwise couldn't do. Not because of your own fuel or your own strength, but because you've received the strength, the grace of God, God working on your behalf, you can now do something that you otherwise couldn't do. It's not you. You can't do that apart from the grace of God, and yet you are involved in it. That you exert that authority that he has given you in your body, because you're like the steward in your body, you exert that against sin, and guess what? All of a sudden, you will have victory over sin. Not because of your own strength, or your own work, or your own labor, but by grace. God's work on your behalf. So he whose strength is in the Lord. Which, by the way, you're going to learn this week about in Christ, and this idea of being in the Lord. But that's where we find our strength. That's where we find victory. That's where we find God laboring on our behalf. It's his strength. Blessed is the man whose strength is in thee, and whose heart are the ways of them, who passing from the valley of Bacah makes it a well. The rain also filleth the pools. They go from strength to strength. Every one of them in Zion appeareth before God. The flying the airplane. Uh, this is an illustration I've used for a long time. And uh, so just imagine with me that you sit down in an airplane, a bunch of you guys flew here, and I always get the aisle seat. I know some people are like, no, window's way better because you can sort of rest your head or whatever. And, uh, but aisle's way better because uh, you can drink as much water as you want to on the airplane, right? <laughs> and not feel like you have to jump over two people to get out, you know? So, uh, so I'm a big aisle fan. Uh, and, and so I sit down in my seat. Imagine I sit down and I, I look over and I've got an empty seat next to me. And there's like a little fly sitting on the seat next to me. Okay, so I look down at a fly. And just, just imagine for me just a minute. This fly looks up at me and he goes, ah! And I say, hey, buddy, what's going on? And, and he says, I'm terrified. And I said, what are you terrified of? He goes, I've been trying my whole life to fly to 30,000 feet. My grandfather died doing it. My father died doing it. And I don't think this plane can carry me. Now, you're like, that is an idiot. Uh, fly, you know. And, and I look down at that fly, and I say, little fly, don't worry. The grace of this airplane is sufficient for you. It's going to labor on your behalf. It's going to work on your behalf. And if I were to ask you the question, is it sufficient? You would say, well, yeah. It's obviously sufficient. You know, because this fly is like, I've tried my whole life. I've never been able to get to 30,000 feet. It, it, you know, my, my lungs start burning. I don't know if they have lungs. But, uh, and, 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 and I say that the, the grace of God is sufficient. That's like us. It's a grace, can the grace of God really do that? Yes. The grace of God is way beyond. I mean, the sufficiency is like a very small word in the English dictionary. I don't know that there's a word that exactly says it, but it's so far beyond sufficient that, that we would be lunatics to doubt the sufficiency of the grace 
of God. You know, it says in 2 Corinthians, now this is in the context of his form in the flesh. We don't really know what it is in Paul's life. But he says, Lord, can you, can you remove this from me, this, this difficulty, this challenge that he's facing, whatever that thorn was, something he didn't want in his life. We know that. And, and, and look how God responds in the midst of his circumstances. He says, my grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness. I, you know, I don't know what challenge you might, maybe it's a sin that you're looking at going, Lord, I think you give victory over sin, but probably not that sin. Or, or, Lord, you probably give victory, but maybe not that circumstance. You know, his grace is like that airplane, and you're the little fly on the seat. It's sufficient. It's sufficient. His strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities and reproaches and needs and persecutions and distresses for Christ's strength. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your all-sufficient, powerful labor on our behalf. We thank you that you gave us that, that favor and that mercy, but that you didn't just cover us in our sin and leave us there, but that you covered us and made us the righteousness of, of, of God in Christ Jesus so that Christ might enter into us by faith and that he might now begin to produce righteousness, a life which we could never live on our own in and through us. Lord, I pray that you would open up our understanding to, to understand these things. And Lord, that we wouldn't just know about it, but that we would walk, that we would have grace to, to serve you acceptably, to walk in the reality of the work and the labor that you've done on our behalf. Lord, what, what a joy this is. The, the grandeur of the gospel, of, of how much has been given to us through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. We love you, Lord. It's in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Bravehearted Voices is brought to you by the ministry of Deeper Christian in partnership with Ellerslie Discipleship. Our passion is to help you grow spiritually by providing Christ-centered resources, discipleship, and training in the Word of God and the victorious life of Christ. Our agenda is to bring back the stuff of old the sort of Christianity that is lived out with the gusto of heaven and actually and practically works. For more, visit BraveHeartedVoices.com.